1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter. On this podcast, we bring you in depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, you'll hear an interview with Dr. Janet Woodcock. She's the director of the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the FDA, but temporarily, she's working as the therapeutics lead for Operation Warp Speed. We spoke on October 14th during CNBC's Healthy Returns, the Path Forward live stream. Here's our conversation. You've been with the FDA since 1986. Uh, You are in the drug industry, an incredibly well-respected drug regulator, just an expert on this process. Now you've flipped over to the other side, helping lead therapeutics development in this really unprecedented uh, effort in Operation Warp Speed. What has that been like?
2: Well, it is interesting to look at it from the other side, all the frustrations and challenges of drug development uh, including being heavily regulated, you know or something that have to be dealt with, and so I think i 'm learning a lot, and of course, this is a very challenging time because we 're trying to move products as quickly as we can so that there 's treatments in the hands of doctors and patients.
1: well, along those lines, I want to ask you about something that 's been in the news you know the the pause in the antibody drug trial from Eli Lilly, specifically an NIH trial in hospitalized patients. Um, What can you tell us about how you look at events like that and what people should really take away when they hear that a trial has been paused to investigate potential safety issues?
2: Sure. Well, this is a trial sponsored by Operation Warp Speed. And this safety pause is very common in drug development. And I think it should be reassuring to people. And why? Because most of the big trials have an independent committee of experts and they watch over the trial. They aren't beholden to the investigators. They aren't beholden to the company. They watch over that trial and see if there's any, some, any signal of concern that comes out. And if there is, they may pause the trial and do a thorough investigation before continuing. And that's to protect both the safety of the patients and the integrity of the trial. So the people doing the trial don't have all that data. The company sponsoring a trial don't have all that data. That independent committee ha- has the look at the trial and they're watching out on behalf of the patients.
1: And given the data that you've seen so far, how promising do the monoclonal antibody drugs look um, as a tool for fighting COVID-19?
2: Well, we're certainly hopeful that in the outpatient setting that they may be effective. They um, have been shown by two companies, when you give it early to people early in infection who are outpatients, that you can decrease the virus that's in their body rather rapidly. Now, some people are already making antibody response. And in fact, they don't probably need more antibodies. They're, going, they're the people who are gonna throw off the infection themselves. But there are other people who might be headed to the hospital because they aren't fighting that virus infection and giving them antibodies that mimic their, the natural antibodies they could make can decrease the virus and potentially decrease the number of people who have to go to the hospital.
1: And, of course, you know, Regeneron actually looked at that in their trial um, in mild to moderate patients who are not in the hospital. They assessed the immune response people were mounting themselves before they administered them the drug or their placebo. You know. There's not going to be enough of these drugs if and when they, they get cleared for market. Um, so, A, is that a good way of stratifying who should get it? But B, do we have the infrastructure to test people for their immune response, you know, in thinking about administering these drugs?
2: Well, that may not be the way to go. It didn't totally separate out the people who were going to get sick. Uh, it, it may well be that we just look at the risk factors. We, we have a pretty good idea now who's at high risk for getting in the hospital, getting in trouble uh, with this virus. And so that may be a way to pick uh, who should get these drugs because they're also the monoclonals right now are given by IV infusion. And that's really not for everybody, especially if they're going to get better on their own.
1: Right. And in the Eli Lilly um, situation, the, the active 3 trial that was paused, it was in hospitalized patients. So that's a different patient population than we've seen the data in. These are the data we saw were in less sick patients who were not in the hospital. I talked with Lilly's CEO Dave Ricks today. you know he he doesn't know what 's going on in the NIH trial. He says any more than the rest of us do, but he said right. if he had to hypothesize the setting in which these drugs would be least likely to work, he said it would be hospitalized patients they're already in a different stage of the disease. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think everyone agrees with that in fact. The hope is that these antibodies
2: would be best before you get the infection right, or after you've been exposed to keep you from getting the infection. The earlier you get an antibody response, the less virus you have in your body and more effectively the antibodies could fight it. So it, there's probably some tipping point in the hospital where you're less suffering from the virus infection and suffering more from hyperinflammation. In other words, overactivation of part of your immune system. At that point, that's where you need the steroids and other uh, things intended to calm down the immune
1: response. And, you know, this is, these are all questions we don't know the answers to yet. But um, how long would you expect immunity if these antibodies work as preventive therapies? How long do you think they can right. be protective?
2: Well, there are different antibodies out there. And, of course, now we uh, are making them in, in uh, cells, you know, in big vats. Right, and they can engineer them to be different. So there's some antibodies that have been engineered to have very long half lives. Half life means how long it stay half the time it stays in the body. How well? How long it stays in the body, basically. And um, those may confer protection for a much longer time. Your ordinary antibody hasn't been changed or engineered. It might be only a month or two.
1: Hmm. I want to ask you, also, of course. You know, Lily and Regeneron have filed for emergency use authorization in that outpatient setting, um, but there's this pause in the hospitalized patient setting for Lily's drug. Do you think that that pause in one setting would have any bearing on the FDA's regulation of patients in another setting?
2: Well, I think the FDA is going to take all due care uh, in evaluating these emergency use authorizations. You certainly wouldn't want there to be any unknown safety issues. But as you said, there are also uh, different populations. I think we all need more information.
1: Yeah. Well, and then the other area where we all want more information, of course, is the vaccine trials that have been paused. What is your thought of, about hearing that, you know, J&J's trial was paused due to an unexplained illness? So um, very little information at this point about what that actually means.
2: Well, don't forget, again, these are independent safety monitoring committees that are making these decisions, and they will take a look at the event. Uh, if you vaccinated 30,000 people, you're going to expect some of them are going to get sick, and there will be different things that happen to them. Some of them will be on the placebo group. Some will actually have been vaccinated with the actual vaccine. You have to sort all that out and determine whether or not you thought the event was related, was it reversible, you know, uh, how severe was it, and and incorporate all that information. So I think people should be reassured that, in fact, this type of safety oversight is occurring, and, you know, the, the safety of the people in the trial is paramount.
1: Hmm. And when you say, you know, you're vaccinating 30,000 people, some are going to get sick. You don't mean because of the vaccine. You mean that people just get sick in life. (laughs) And the likelihood somebody does in a trial is high when it's a big trial.
2: Thanks for, yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Absolutely. Um, People in the, 15,000 of those people about will be in the placebo group and some of them will get sick with different things and they didn't even get the vaccine, right? Right. We see, you know, people get hit by a bus in trials and all sorts of things happen. And for drug trials, we want to make sure it wasn't because they were dizzy, right, from a side effect Mm. of the drug. So, um, you know, you really have to look carefully. My point was, though, and thank you for clarifying that, was when you have vaccinated or uh, enrolled so many people in a trial, some of them are going to get different illnesses anyway that they would have gotten regardless.
1: Mm -hmm. I'd also want to ask your take on, on, um, you know, the AstraZeneca trial and a take on it that I've heard. And I'd wonder if you would agree with this. You know, the of course, that trial was put on hold back in September and has restarted around the world. But the FDA still has it on hold here in the U.S. One take from somebody in public health I heard was, well, you know, look at what the FDA did back with thalidomide. We were conservative. Um, we protected people uh, because we did not allow thalidomide to get to the market. Is this an instance in which you think, you know, is the FDA more conservative, more careful than perhaps regulators in other countries?
2: Yeah, I really can't comment on that. I can only say that the FDA is taking, you know, will take extreme care to make sure that these trials are conducted properly and the participants are safe. And they always do that, um, you know, vaccines are given to people who are otherwise uh, healthy uh, compared to therapeutics. And, you know, safety is really paramount with vaccines. So you have to be careful. And the FDA is being careful, I believe.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
1: Clinical trials, um, because you mm-hmm. said something in our panel on Monday at the Milken conference, which made me say, Oh my gosh, I need to do a whole live stream with Dr. Woodcock, because that is fascinating. You said more than 90% of the clinical trials being run for COVID 19 won't yield actionable results that will actually be helpful to figuring out how best to treat patients. Tell me about that.
2: That's right. Uh, at FDA we have done inventories and we've looked at registered trials all around the world and the registered trials in the. US and what we found was about 94 percent of them are not going to yield by our criteria results that we could people can make decisions on including the FDA and the reasons for that is a lot of them are observational studies that were not randomized many of them were what it's called underpowered they didn't have enough patients uh, plan to be enrolled, that you would actually be able to figure out what happened. And then another category is even if the 6% of trials that appear like they could be actionable, they're having trouble enrolling. And part of that is because they're having competition from all these other small trials that really aren't going to yield actionable information.
1: So the 6% of the trials that are Uh, well-designed to actually give us the answers we need can't enroll patients because patients are enrolling. If they're enrolling in trials, they're enrolling in other trials, perhaps because they would be guaranteed not to get the placebo. I mean, is that the kind of thing we're talking about?
2: Some of it. Some of it is really there isn't a good clinical trial reach out in the United States to the community. So for example, most people with cancer never get a chance to enroll in a trial. And that may be their a very good shot at having a better outcome, right? Um, and true with COVID as well, with tens of thousands of people being infected, most of them aren't within reach of a trial or they may be enrolled in an observational study where people just see what happens to them. They don't put them in a in a trial of a, a new agent or a, tr- a certain treatment and so forth. So um, Part of it is we don't have a good system in the United States for responding to a crisis like this and really have a clinical trial system that can um, answer questions rapidly.
1: Mm. Well, the UK has been getting a lot of compliments on the recovery trial that they run. And of course, that yielded the information that dexamethasone could save lives in very severe patients. Is that the kind of system we should be aiming for? Um, And are there any critiques you might have of how they ran that trial?
2: Well, people criticize recovery because it is an open label trial and certain aspects of its design. But it truly has given even more actionable information like that on a number of drugs and continues to randomize a lot of patients. But I think the important thing about recovery is much of it is done in the National Health Service hospitals, in the community, they're randomizing a very large number of people and their outcome measures death so they're looking at impact you know on mortality of of different agents and they're very efficiently enrolling really thousands and thousands of patients to get these answers
1: We've got a question from the audience that I want to ask you now from Mark Schaefer on Twitter, um, who responded to that 90% figure and asks, does that figure differ from clinical trials done outside pandemic times? Do we usually have better clinical trials in the pandemic? We're just not? Or, uh, you know, do we always have this problem?
2: I think it's much worse now um, because everybody's trying to do something. Everybody's trying to get a trial going and find answers because we don't have any answers, and this is such a huge crisis. But in fact, it is very endemic um, in the United States that we have large numbers of trials that go on that don't answer questions, that don't get fully enrolled. Even if they do get fully enrolled, they aren't big enough robust enough to answer the question. And they also always say at the end, more research is needed. And this, you know, is not a good use of, I think, our research infrastructure.
1: How can we do better with that? I mean, and even, you know, acutely thinking about the vaccine trials and then how important it is to enroll diverse populations and the people who are most vulnerable to severe disease. From what you've observed, are they doing a good job of that? And and how can they when our infrastructure isn't set up well to do it?
2: Well, they're trying their best and they are, you know, targeting, trying to get good balance and and enroll people who are the most impacted by this disease. But that, you know, relationship building is what is required. And that takes time and um, building relationships with the various affected communities and that's where not having an infrastructure in the United States of clinic, ongoing clinical trials is hurting us because we have to um, make special efforts now to reach into those communities. So yeah. um, we, we're hampered by the fact that we haven't had this infrastructure ongoing.
1: I'm imagining you see an opportunity here to, to fix this problem, but do you see efforts actually happening to fix this problem so that things are better after the pandemic?
2: Yes, I have long been working on this with several other people um, to try to get what we call master protocols stood up. Master protocols usually are organized around a disease, and their their goal is to improve the disease outcomes over time. In other words, make people's outcomes with that disease better and better and better every year. And the way to do that is to have a trial that's centered around the people with the disease, (laughs) And that is ongoing over time. It doesn't stop and start with different evaluating different agents. And during the time there aren't new agents, it can just evaluate the standard of care and try to improve that standard of care. And frankly, many rare disease groups in particularly are extremely interested in this. And there are many trials being set up like this around the world. So I think there is hope that we can move away from these single trials, studying a single question, and really get trial infrastructure in place that actually is trying to improve people's lives and improve disease outcomes over time.
1: Is one of the hurdles to implementing master protocols that the pharmaceutical companies uh, don't want their products to be really compared apples to apples, head to head? Mm
2: Well, you know, they shouldn't actually be developing products unless they think they're going to be better, right, than existing uh, interventions. I believe uh, there are many other barriers. They feel right now this is a new type of methodology. They're worried about what the regulators will think. They think maybe it won't be as quick and as efficient as the trials that they traditionally do of just their single agent. And they're right in some of these. What we need to do is improve the master protocol structure so it can perform well. And I believe industry would be very interested in participating in these trials. Right now, they do participate in some, for example, there's some cancer uh, trials going on right now in breast cancer and lung cancer and so forth that are master protocols. And they've evaluated dozens of agents
1: yeah. Uh, the reason I asked that question was um, you talking about a master protocol reminded me of a piece that Carl Zimmer wrote just a couple of days ago in The New York Times. And he quoted, I think, Dr. Fauci, not explicitly saying that that was the problem with uh, the vaccine trials, trying to run a master protocol, but sort of he, he implied the pharmaceutical companies weren't necessarily on board with it. Um, but there are also other problems like they weren't all ready to go at the same time. So I imagine there are a lot of things like that, too, right now.
2: Right. Well, active 3 the trial that was paused, and the active trials in general are master protocols. So they are designed to be able to evaluate more than one agent at a time. And the good thing about that is we they can share control groups. And so you don't have to enroll as many people. And you can evaluate numerous things. And, and also, as you pointed out, then you get some head-to-head outcomes against the various things you're testing. So there are benefits from patient sparing and efficiency but these trials have to get up and running and of course the vaccine trials just had to get up and running really quickly and enroll a very large number of people and probably starting a master protocol within those parameters would have been very challenging
0: this podcast is supported by fedex dear small and medium businesses no one wants happy customers more than you do
1: We've got another question from Twitter about um, the protocols under operation warp speed from Ivan um, who asks, what are the material differences in the rollout, supervision, or analyses of phase three clinical trials as they're implemented under operation warp speed as compared to the normal modus operandi? I'd say
2: there's almost no difference. Uh, They're very rigorous registration trials. Some of the differences is we're trying to get more sites. So we're putting more money into these trials so that there's a lot of sites so we can enroll a lot of patients rapidly. But, you know, we see that happening in in, uh, industry or other trials too sometimes. Another difference with Operation Warp Speed is that we're subsidizing the manufacturers to scale up production of their product before we know whether it works or not. And this is because if we came to the end of the trial and we had a successful outcome of the trial, and then we didn't have any product, we'd say, well, it'll take a year or two to, to make enough product. I don't think people would be very satisfied with that. So so that is different, and that's a different part of Operation Warp Speed. But as far as the methodology and the rigor of these trials, they would match any registration trial that's done.
1: Mm-hmm. We've got another um, question about uh, the medicine sort of in the tool belt. Um, In in addition to antibodies, antivirals are another approach. And Richard on Twitter asks, tell us about which antivirals besides remdesivir are leading the pack and showing promising results. Is there anything, he asks, on the FDA's radar? But I'd ask you on Operation Warp Speed's radar since that's your current role.
2: Sure. Well, we're following various antivirals. I'm not going to call any out because, you know, they're in in sort of a race. They all are repurposed, and the reason for that, repurposed means they were developed for something else, some other virus, and now they're being tried here. The reason for that is to get one from scratch it would take several years and we don't have several years, although I'm sure people are working on that. So there are some antivirals in the pipeline, they are being tested in different places around the world. Operation Warp Speed is involved in these and we shall see uh, which ones come out the other end. Hopefully we will have an oral antiviral at some
1: point in
2: this pandemic that'll be effective. That would be terrific.
1: That would be terrific. And we're starting to get a lot of questions for you asking you to kind of look into your crystal ball about <laughs> what the what the future of this pandemic looks like. And, and I'll ask you to do that uh, through the lens of therapeutics and vaccines. um, Can you walk us through what you think the next six months to a year looks like in terms of the tools that will be hopefully available to us, how we will use them, and what impact that'll have on the pandemic?
2: Well, of course, for any infectious disease, sort of the holy grail that we're going after is an effective vaccine, right, that lasts, that immunity lasts over time, and people, you know, remain immune to it. So we can hope, uh, hopefully, that there are many vaccine candidates being developed, that some of these are successful, that they are available. Operation Warp Speed, again, is um, supporting availability of these by helping the manufacturer make large quantities well before we know whether the vaccine is safe and effective. Uh, they would only be used if they were safe and effective, but we can't complete the trials and then start scaling up the manufacturing. So those hopefully as has been said by a number of people should be available sometime, say early winter, potentially depending on the event rate in the trials um, that is, again, done by this independent committee. They decide when the, a number of events have accumulated enough. They do these analyses and decide whether or not certain boundaries have been crossed. And then that would mean that everybody could look at the data. And um, if such a thing were to happen, and uh, then the vaccines might become available for use, widespread use, and mass vaccination campaigns would have to go on in the United States, you know, starting in December, January, whenever these vaccines became available. In the meantime, hopefully we'll have additional therapeutics um, in our armamentarium that we can use both for outpatients and hopefully more for inpatients. And this should grow over time. So in the uh, late winter, early spring, hopefully we get lot of people vaccinated and immune. Uh, We don't know how long that'll last, but hopefully they'll be immune and then have therapeutics. Should they fall ill or should they not be vaccinated or should they not respond to a vaccine? For example, elderly people or people who are immunocompromised may not respond to a vaccine. So we will still need therapeutics for those people and possibly uh, prophylactic drugs such as potentially antibodies that could prevent you from getting sick if you had been exposed. And so Mm. at some point we should transition to uh, a state where we have this outbreak under control and we can begin to move more freely in our society. And when do you think that magical day (laughs) will arrive? Well, you know, Frankly, if I could tell you that, I'd probably be on Wall Street or in a different job if I were that good at <laughs> prognostication. I do not know. Um, many things have to happen and come together for each one of these things to happen. And drug development is very famous for its unpredictability um, and it's in the problems that you encounter during drug development. That's why uh, Operation Warp Speed is supporting many different interventions, because it's undoubtedly true that every one of them is not gonna to come to pass. So, but we can hope some of them will and that those will be effective and safe and that we can uh, start using those tools.
1: Well, as we wait for those tools to come along, you know, we are getting some questions from folks about different models and ways to respond to the pandemic. Um, Kiki or Kiki uh, on Twitter asks, what do you think about the Swedish model during the pandemic? Um, and I guess to translate that, in some ways, I mean, there is an argument that we should not be so shut down, uh, staying apart from each other and locked down. We should just be protecting the vulnerable, but everybody else should be sort of out and about. And, and some people call this herd immunity, not through vaccines. I mean, how do you look at that whole idea?
2: Well, everything in life is trade offs, and different people have different risk um, calculations. I think in the United States, were we to sort of abandon our current dis- social distancing and ab- masks and so forth and let people, that um, despite the thought of, well, everybody will go out and help commerce and everything. If we if would we, start to have a huge number of hospitalizations and ill people well above what we have now, many people in the population would not go out <laughs> because it's terrifying and people are afraid of, um, of infection. And so there are some people's risk tolerance is different than other people's. And I think that's why we have these disagreements in society. And in addition, there are some calculation of risk that people do differently. Uh, but I know many, many people around the country who you know, are being extremely careful right now. And no matter, I mean, if the uh, pandemic became worse in the United States, I think a significant number of people would be even more careful because they they, are, uh, they don't want to take those kind of risks.
1: Mm. Well, that brings me to another question from our audience from John on Twitter, who asks, what's the probability of a more severe second wave of COVID-19 in the U.S.? Um, and I, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm hearing even calling it a wave is maybe not even the right terminology, um, because we've already seen a number of peaks and troughs here in the U.S. in different geographical areas. But, you know, as we head into the winter, do you think it's going to get worse before we have the tools to help it get better.
2: It may. I, th- I would remind people that we have learned how to treat this uh, infection better. And so they, um, the fatality rate ha- has dropped uh, of hospitalized patients, but people are still dying of this uh, infection, respiratory infection. And um, I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about what are the factors that govern um the, the rise and fall of this. If you recall, people who were uh, reasoning from influenza felt that we would have uh, sort of a subsistence of the virus in the summer. We didn't see that happen um, in the South in particular. Now in the North, the weather's getting colder, people <laughs> indoors. Uh, we're seeing rising rates uh, in, in a lot of states. And so I think we're gonna have to be very careful.
1: And my last question for you is: we're at five o'clock. Is if people want to be involved in clinical research, um, where should they go? We
2: should have a portal up soon um, about the clinical trials because if people want to help and there's something that you can contribute, if you're healthy, you could volunteer for a vaccine trial. If you're sick with COVID, there are a lot of treatment trials underway, and we want to have a portal where all the sites for those trials are available. Uh, we should have that in about two weeks so that you can um, figure out if there's a site near you where you could uh, volunteer and be in a trial. And if you've recovered from COVID, there's a lot of information online about how you can donate convalescent plasma and, uh, and help that way. So there are many ways people can help participate and be part of the
1: solution. That was Dr. Janet Woodcock, Therapeutics Lead for Operation Warp Speed. We spoke on October 14th, 2020, as part of CNBC's Healthy Returns, the Path Forward series. The keynote is produced by the CNBC Events team. For information on upcoming virtual events and how you can participate, please visit cnbcevents.com. I'm Meg Terrell. Take care and thanks for listening.